Okay, in this class, we're going to discuss the ostomy nurse role and provision of sexual counseling for the ostomy patient. So first, we're gonna talk about why do we do this? Why are ostomy nurses providing sexual counseling for ostomy patients? Then we're gonna talk about both the psychological and physical impact of ostomy surgery on sexuality and sexual function. And finally, we're going to review the PLICIT model for sexual counseling with specific application to the ostomy patient population. So first of all, why are ostomy nurses doing sexual counseling? Well, first of all, establishment and maintenance of intimate relationships and the impact of surgical procedures is a major concern for any individual undergoing any body-altering surgery. So whether you're talking mastectomy, amputation, ostomy surgery, sometimes even abdominal surgery with resultant scarring, that can cause major concerns among the individual undergoing the surgery about, wow, my body doesn't look the same, doesn't act the same. Is it going to impact on my sexual relationship? Is it going to impact on my ability to maintain intimacy with my partner? So it's a very common concern. And usually, no one else is doing it. So a lot of times, if you bring up the topic, the patient will be like, oh, Thank goodness, I didn't know who to ask. Thank you for bringing this up. And interestingly, studies have shown that 40% of ostomy patients state they had major concerns and received no information about sexuality and intimacy following ostomy surgery. So it's an important part of human life and intimate relationships. Patients have questions and concerns. No one else is doing it, and that's why we do it. So a lot of you are probably thinking, well, I don't know if I really have the skill set to do that. I don't know if I'm the right person. So let's talk about what is needed for you to be effective in this role. And the first is simply an appreciation and awareness that sexuality is an important part of life and relationships that impacts on self-esteem and that people who have body-altering surgery do have major concerns that need to be addressed. Most people want to know that they have the ability to establish or to maintain an intimate relationship. I have had many, many patients who have told me when I bring this up, I'm glad you brought this up. I have questions. Now, I'm not in a relationship right now, but I hope I will be in the future, and I want to know how it's going to work and what I need to think about and how I would explain this whole ostomy thing to a partner. So just recognizing that this is an important concern for most people, that's the first thing. Common concerns. Does this surgery in any way alter my ability to function as a sexual partner? Is it gonna change my ability to get an erection, maintain an erection? Is it gonna cause pain with intercourse? Is anything gonna be changed because of the surgery itself? And secondly, as we've already addressed in previous classes, a lot of patients wonder, is anyone still gonna want me for a sexual partner? People in sexual relationships wonder about that individual, their specific partner. Is he or she gonna still find me attractive, still find me desirable? People who are not in an established relationship, they have a more global concern. Will anybody want to date me, want to establish a relationship with me, want to have sex with me if they find out I have an ostomy? So these are big concerns. The second thing you need is you need to be able to answer patients' questions. 
So you need to know whether or not the surgery they had will have any impact on sexual function. You need to know, well, how do people usually react when their sexual partner has an ostomy? And I'm going to go on and address that. I want you to know that studies indicate that the vast majority of individuals are perfectly comfortable resuming sex with someone who has an ostomy. In general, what research has shown is if you have a good relationship with your sexual partner, they just want you to be okay. They're glad to have you back. And the ostomy doesn't interfere with the sexual relationship. So in general, we find that the ostomy is not a deterrent, is not a negative aspect. And then finally, you need comfort with the subject. So sexuality is a sensitive issue, and a lot of people are like, I just don't know if I can talk about that. So then you should focus on what is it that my patient needs? Does my patient have questions? Do I have answers? Can I provide them with guidance, with information? Then I can get over myself. And what we find is that we get more comfortable with practice the other thing I found early on is that my patients made me feel better. So if I could just find a way to bring the topic up without acting weird, they would immediately say, oh, yes, I have questions. I didn't know who to ask. I tried to ask my doctor. He kind of brushed me off. So here's what I've been wondering. So your job is to bring it up, give your patient the opportunity to ask any questions they have. So I think I just went in the wrong direction. Let's see if I can correct that. Okay, so let's talk about the impact of ostomy surgery on sexuality and sexual function. And we're first gonna talk about the psychological impact, which affects both men and women. Now, if you look at the third bullet point, women are more likely to verbalize this. So they're more likely to say out loud, I'm worried that my husband, my partner, he says he's okay, he says he'll still wanna have sex with me, he says it's not gonna bother him. I don't think I believe him. I think he's not gonna be okay. Men are more likely to keep it to themselves, but it doesn't mean they're not worried. When you sit down and talk to them, They'll frequently say, well, I don't, I don't know how my wife's going to feel. I don't know how my partner's going to feel. I don't know if she's still going to want to have sex with me. And I'm also worried about, is everything going to work? So, yes, psychological issues are important for both men and women. And these concerns, especially if they're not verbalized, they're not discussed, they're not addressed, can have a very negative impact. So you think about during sexual activity, one partner's level of arousal, level of engagement has a direct impact on the other partner's level of arousal. So if I'm terribly worried that my partner's just having sex because he feels like he should, but he doesn't really want to have sex with me. He doesn't find me attractive. What happens? I become very withdrawn. I become less engaged, less responsive. And what impact does that have on his level of arousal? He becomes less engaged, less sexually aroused. And then I've got a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we don't want that to happen. Bottom line, we want to help our patients and their partners communicate honestly with each other, and we want them to find their way back to each other so that they're once again able to share sexual pleasure with each other and the ostomy doesn't get in the way. So one of the things we do is we encourage open discussion. So I encourage my patient to tell me what are the concerns you have. And then I say, have you talked to your partner? Well, yes, but he says he'll be okay, but I don't believe him. Well, why don't you believe him? And it frequently gets back to because I don't feel the same. I don't feel as attractive. So how could he find me attractive? 
So then I share with them, you know what studies have shown? Studies have shown that if you're in a good relationship, that the ostomy doesn't interfere with sex and with interest and with arousal. So what we need to do is help you find a way to be comfortable with yourself so that you're not projecting your feelings onto your partner. He's already told you he's okay. And in general, men are much more able to get past those kinds of things, to get past something that looks different than women. I mean, women are like, oh, not tonight. My hair is a mess. Men are like, I don't care. I'm not going to look at your hair. Here, put a paper bag on your head if you need to. That's not going to get in my way. And what men consistently say is the ostomy doesn't get in my way. Actually, most women say about their male partner, the ostomy is not going to get in my way. I'm glad he's okay. So you want to share with your patient, here's what research has shown. Here's what your partner is telling you. You want to be honest with him about how you feel, and then we want to focus on helping you feel better. What about physical impact? So we're going to divide this into male sexual function, female sexual function. So talking about male sexual function, normal function requires intact blood flow, normal hormonal levels, normal nerve pathways, and normal psychic response. So when you think about erection, erection is a neurovascular phenomenon. It's mediated primarily by the parasympathetic nerves. So what the parasympathetic nerves do is release acetylcholine that is metabolized to nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a potent vasodilator. So sexual arousal causes parasympathetic stimulation. Parasympathetic stimulation results in nitric oxide production. That causes vasodilation and assuming normal blood flow. The end result is erection. Now, orgasm and ejaculation are controlled by totally different pathways. So let's talk first about the sympathetic pathways and what they do. So sympathetic nerve pathways cause contraction of the prostate gland and the seminal vesicles. And that causes seminal fluid to be propelled into the proximal urethra. That's known as emission. That's not ejaculation. It just moves seminal fluid out of the prostate into the urethra. The pudendal nerve is responsible for orgasm. And what is that? It's contraction of the skeletal muscles. And contraction of the skeletal muscles and the smooth muscles in the urethra does two things. First of all, it causes the pleasurable sensations we know as orgasm. But also, when you get contraction of the smooth muscle in the urethra, skeletal muscle in the pelvic floor, it propels the seminal fluid distally. So you get orgasm and ejaculation simultaneously. So why would radical pelvic dissection impact on sexual function. Well, think about the pathway. So the nerves that control erection and ejaculation pass through the perirectal and the periprostatic tissue. So the parasympathetic nerves exit the cord at S2 to S4. So they come off the cord very low and they pass right around the perirectal tissue then through the prostate capsule right along the prostate gland and into the erectile tissue. The sympathetic nerves exit the cord at T10 to L2, so much higher, drop into the pelvis behind the rectum, then join the parasympathetic nerves. They pass around the rectum, through the prostate, to innervate the seminal vesicles and the prostate gland. So now you start to see the relevance of radical pelvic surgery. If you do a radical rectal resection, you could damage the nerves as they pass through the perirectal tissue. If you remove the prostate gland, 
you can damage the nerves as they pass through the prostate capsule to innervate the seminal vesicles in the prostate gland. So now let's break it down to specific procedures that our patients may be undergoing. For many years, men with bladder cancer required radical cystoprostatectomy. It was non-nerve sparing. They did not yet know how to do a nerve sparing procedure. So for many years, any male with bladder cancer underwent removal of the bladder, removal of the prostate gland, removal of sections of both the parasympathetic and sympathetic nerves as they pass through the prostate gland. So in that case, if you take out the entire bladder, you take out the prostate gland, you don't do anything to protect the nerves, then those patients routinely lost erectile function, ejaculatory function long-term. And the only way we could give them back erectile function was to take them to surgery and do some kind of penile prosthesis. So yes, for many years, Removal of the bladder was associated with loss of both erection and ejaculation. That is no longer true because now the standard of care is a nerve-sparing cystoprostatectomy. So if they do a nerve-sparing approach, they remove the bladder, they remove the prostate gland, but they identify the nerves that are passing through the prostate gland. And what they do is they scrape the prostatic tissue off of the nerve pathway, but they preserve the nerve. So they're scraping off the prostatic tissue, preserving the nerve. Ejaculation will be lost long-term because where does the seminal fluid come from? The prostate gland and the seminal vesicles, and the prostate gland and seminal vesicles are gone. But what about erection? Well, if we can preserve the parasympathetic nerve pathways, then we can preserve erection. So that's the whole point of the nerve-sparing cystoprostatectomy. A lot of men lose erection temporarily because of trauma swelling to the nerve because when we're scraping all that prostatic tissue off, we are causing trauma to the nerve, but it's going to recover. And almost all men get erection back within three to six months. So yes, they lose the ability to make babies, but they retain the ability to obtain and maintain an erection and have intercourse, the vast majority. So that's now the standard of care. And the only time you would see a patient have the old version where they just take out the bladder, take out the prostate, don't try to preserve nerve pathways, the only time they would do that is in a patient who has dementia or advanced comorbidities. Most of those patients are no longer sexually active. And notice that across the board, the pudendal nerve does not pass through the perirectal tissue, does not pass through the prostatic capsule. So the pudendal nerve, which mediates sensation and orgasm, is never involved, never affected. Well, what about rectal resection? So remember that the nerves that control erection and ejaculation pass right around the rectum. They pass through the perirectal tissue on their way to the prostatic capsule. So that's another point where they can be damaged. So what about men who have rectal cancer and require wide rectal resection? So they're gonna to have to take out the rectum, they're gonna to have to take out the perirectal tissue and the lymph nodes then those men may get into some degree of loss of erection and ejaculation due to nerve trauma and edema. Now, most of the time, any dysfunction is temporary and resolves within two to three months because surgeons are much more conscious 
of those nerve pathways, the need to protect those nerve pathways. But you also have to think about, okay, how extensive is the cancer? And how much perirectal tissue has to be removed to give this patient a good chance of cure? So if you have extensive rectal cancer and they have to do a very wide resection, there is some potential of long-term dysfunction. Also, everybody's a little bit different. So the pathway that patient's A's nerves follow can be different than the pathways followed by patient B. So for some patients, the nerves pass fairly close to the rectum, while in other patients, the path is much further away. So the risk of dysfunction is gonna be impacted by the extent of tumor invasion and how much resection is required. It's going to be impacted by anatomic variations in the nerve pathways, also by the presence of any vascular disease. What if this patient has advanced vascular disease and they don't have good blood flow to the erectile tissue? Well, that's definitely going to have an impact. And finally, did they do an open surgical procedure or did they use a laparoscopic approach? A laparoscopic approach results in lower levels of tissue trauma and less potential for long-term dysfunction. What about young men who have inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis? They require rectal resection, but it's a narrow resection because when you have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, you don't need to take any of the perirectal tissue. The disease process does not extend to the perirectal tissue, doesn't affect the lymph nodes. You only have to take the rectum itself. So those patients are extremely low risk. It's extremely unlikely that they would have any dysfunction at all. If they do have any dysfunction, it's almost always temporary. I can't remember when I've had a young patient who had a narrow rectal resection for inflammatory bowel disease who had any long-term issues with sexual function. What about women? So what you should know is that vaginal lubrication and clitoral congestion in the female is considered analogous to erection in the male, and it's thought to be mediated by the parasympathetic pathways, which in the female, just like in the male, exit the cord at S2 to S4, pass through the perirectal tissue to the clitoris and the vaginal glands. Sensation and orgasm is mediated by the pudendal nerve, which follows a very different pathway and is not at risk during pelvic dissection. It exits the cord at S2 and S4, but it travels a very wide pathway. It innervates the perineum and the pelvic floor muscles. So rectal resection really does not affect pudendal nerve function. So let's look at the impact of wide rectal resection on female sexual function. So let's say this female has rectal cancer. They're gonna remove the rectum. They're going to remove perirectal tissue. There is the potential for reduced vaginal lubrication, reduction in clitoral congestion. It could be temporary, it could be long-term. Because remember, we might cause damage to those nerves as they pass through the perirectal tissue. Women are really at increased risk for sexual dysfunction if they require wide rectal resection because most women with rectal cancer are postmenopausal and many require pelvic radiation. And changes in estrogen levels cause reduction in vaginal lubrication, clitoral congestion. Pelvic radiation almost eliminates 
um, the function of the vaginal glands, so almost eliminates vaginal lubrication. So at the end, you have a woman who's postmenopausal, who's required pelvic radiation, and now requires wide rectal resection. Almost always, that patient will lose vaginal lubrication, lose some degree of clitoral congestion, and it's hard to tell how much of those changes is due to hormonal changes, how much is due to pelvic radiation, how much is due to the surgery itself. The other thing that impacts on women, not on men, but on women, is when you remove the rectum, you totally change the angle of the vagina because normally the rectum supports the posterior wall of the vagina. But now you've removed it, and instead of the rectum, you have scar tissue. So that changes the angle of the vaginal vault. And as a result, many women experience pain with intercourse. Until they experiment with different positions, until they um, experiment with positions that allow them to control the depth of penile penetration, and that's what they're going to have to do to be able to resume intercourse without discomfort. They're going to have to experiment. So we need to let them know if the rectum is being removed, that's going to change things sexually. It's going to change the angle. You might experience discomfort or pain. You're going to be able to fix that, but you and your partner are going to have to experiment. You're going to have to find the right position, the right angle. And we should routinely counsel these women, expect to have reduced lubrication, so just plan to use additional lubricant so that that doesn't become an issue. What about narrow rectal resection for inflammatory bowel disease? Well, again, you're unlikely to damage the nerves passing around the rectum because you're just removing the rectum. They might have some temporary reduction in vaginal lubrication, clitoral congestion, but it's likely to be very temporary. However, you still have the issue with removal of the rectum, change in the vaginal angle that can cause pain with intercourse. So you still need to tell these women, look, you might have some short-term reduction in lubrication, so plan to use a lubricant. But also, you need to be aware that taking out the rectum changes the angle of your vagina, and you are going to have to experiment with different positions till you find the one that works for you and your partner. Some pelvic dissection procedures require partial or total removal of the vagina. So let's talk about that. Partial vaginectomy can be required for the patient with advanced pelvic cancer if they require a pelvic exoneration. So specifically, if I have a female with bladder or urothelial cancer that requires radical resection, removal of the bladder in women also involves removal of the urethra. Now, you can look at these diagrams. You know this already, but look at the diagrams because you can clearly see that the posterior urethral wall is continuous with the anterior vaginal wall. So when you remove the bladder and the urethra, you're removing the anterior wall of the vagina. And so now you're going to have scar tissue where you had the vaginal vault. Most commonly, they remove at least one-third of the vagina. Sometimes they remove the entire vault. But right now, we're going to talk about partial vaginectomy. When they remove the proximal one-third, then intercourse has to be delayed until you have complete healing. So the surgeon has to provide clearance. They have to say, okay, the vaginal vault is well healed. That suture line is good. You can resume intercourse. And you're going to experiment with different positions till you find the one that's best. Usually sideline 
or woman on top so that she can control depth and penetration, those are usually best. Total vaginectomy. If they have to remove the entire vagina, then most surgeons will do vaginal reconstruction at the time of the original surgery. So they'll construct a neo-vagina, and that's what you see on the slide. So on the top illustration, you see everything that's being removed, the bladder, the reproductive organs, and the vaginal vault. And then you see where the neo-vagina has been reconstructed. How do they do that? Well, there have been a number of different approaches. Most commonly, they'll either use the gracilis muscles, so those are muscles that run along the inner thigh. They're not essential to walking. They're really important if you're hanging from a tree, but most women are willing to give that up. So they can lift the gracilis muscles. So they can do a three-point resection to lift a flap of the gracilis muscle. They can tunnel those flaps up into the pelvic defect, sew them together to create a vault. That's one way. So gracilis muscle um, reconstruction. The other way is to use a segment of sigmoid colon. You're like, sigmoid colon? That's what they're going to use to make a vagina. But it turns out that you really can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. What they do is they take the sigmoid colon, they clean it out very well, and then it's a great choice because it's muscular, it's lined with mucosa, so those mucus-secreting glands provide lubrication. And so actually it's a great choice for vaginal reconstruction. So either the gracilis muscles or the sigmoid colon, most commonly used at present. A lot of arguments for doing vaginal reconstruction at the time of the original surgery. Some of these women who have extensive pelvic malignancy require removal of the bladder and the urethra, the vagina and the reproductive organs, and part or all of the rectum. So they end up with an open pelvis. And if you don't do anything to segment the abdominal cavity and the pelvic cavity, you get loops of bowel dropping down into the pelvis, sticking to that denuded pelvic floor, you end up with bowel obstructions. So vaginal reconstruction not only contributes significantly to psychosexual rehabilitation, to my feeling that I'm female, and to my ability to maintain my intimate relationship, but also helps protect me against some very serious complications related to loops of bowel dropping into the pelvis. Now, depending on their approach to vaginal reconstruction, some women do have to do routine dilatation with a dilator during the initial healing phase, and then they're encouraged to have regular intercourse to maintain patency of the neovagina. Fortunately, even when we have to do radical pelvic dissection, most of the time the pathways for the pudendal nerve are unaffected. So the pathways for sexual arousal and for orgasm typically maintained. Now we have to also think about the impact of the ostomy on the partner. We've mentioned this a little bit, but in this slide we're gonna focus on that. So we know that anytime there's body altering surgery, both the patient and the partner have to adjust. Whether we're talking amputation, mastectomy, ostomy creation, any of those. And we also know that the rate at which I adapt to this change and the rate at which my partner adapts are likely to be different. So what we want to do is we want to get all the cards on the table. We just want the patient and the partner to be able to talk openly and honestly. We want to say, look, 
you've had a big change. We had to remove your rectum. We had to create an ostomy. That's a big adjustment for you. It's also an adjustment for you as the partner. So you both got to come to terms with this. I want you both to realize that even if you think the stoma is ugly, it has nothing to do with your feelings about the person, has nothing to do with your ability to resume a satisfying sexual relationship. So I want you to separate how you feel about the ostomy from how you feel about your partner. And I want you both to work at being honest when you talk to each other about where you're to how you're feeling, and your readiness to resume sexual activity. So I remember one patient, and she said to me, are you real busy at 3 o'clock this afternoon? And I'm like, well, I've got some things, but I can reschedule them. Do I have an invitation? She's like, well, I would really like it if you could come to my room. My husband's going to be here. He wants to see the stoma. We've been married for 25 years. It seems so silly, but I would really feel better if you were here. So I'm like, well, will there be refreshments? And she's like, well, I'll see what the nurses can find. I'm like, never mind. I'll come. So I went to her room at 3 o'clock, and before we took off the pouch, we talked about what the stoma looks like. We talked about the fact that He might think the stoma was ugly. She already told me she thought the stoma was ugly. And we talked about the fact that that's absolutely fine. If you look at a lineup of anuses, they're not very attractive either. And this is basically a substitute anus. So it's okay if you think the stoma's ugly. That doesn't change how you feel about each other. And we talked about how important it was to be open and honest so that they could move forward. So we take off the pouch, and her husband looks at the stoma. He's like, honey, you're right. That is one weird-looking thing. But it doesn't matter. I don't care how it looks. I love you, and we're going to be okay. And she felt so much better because he had been able to be open and honest. They could talk about it together. And that gave them the closeness and the intimacy to move forward to resume their sexual relationship. So just talking honestly and openly makes a huge difference. So the last thing we're going to talk about is the plicit model for sexual counseling as it relates to the ostomy patient population. When we're doing sexual counseling, what's our goal? If this patient has been in a sexual relationship, we want the patient and the partner to be able to resume that relationship and maintain that relationship. We don't want them to lose that. If we have a patient who is not in a relationship, we want to answer any questions they have and let them know that they do have the capacity to establish a satisfying sexual relationship in the future if they meet someone. We definitely want the patient and the partner to be able to explore any sexual concerns. And one thing that's not on the slide but that's very important, a lot of patients will say to you, I don't even care about the sex so much. I just don't want to lose that closeness. I don't want to lose that intimacy. I want to be able to cuddle with my partner. I want to be able to talk openly with my partner. I just don't want anything to get in the way. And patients have told us many times, you know, I can't have intercourse anymore. I can't get an erection because I had my bladder removed. But I, that's not what I miss. What I miss is the closeness. So I want to find my way back to being in a close relationship, to being close physically as well as emotionally. I don't want to lose that. Right now, my wife and I, my partner and I, we're sleeping in separate beds. I want to find my way back to us sleeping together and sharing that closeness. 
Okay, so in assessing a patient and their partner, there's some critical information. I want to find out what their concerns are. So I'm going to ask, and I'm going to talk about good introductory questions and statements. So I want to find out what their concerns, what their questions are, so we can address those concerns and those questions. And I also want to determine how open they are. And again, just by introducing the topic, I can see the, by their response. Do they immediately say, oh, good, I have questions? Or do they avoid eye contact, act pretty uncomfortable, but not shut down the conversation? So maybe I really want the information. I have some questions. I'm just not very comfortable, but I want you to proceed. If it's not a concern to me, I'll say, I'm not really worried about that right now. Fine. Then we'll move on to things you are worried about. So I want to find out what their concerns are. I want to take note of their openness. It's helpful to know if there have been any previous issues, especially for a male who is facing possible issues with erectile dysfunction. Helpful to know if he's been having problems. So some of my patients tell me when I bring this up, you know, I had to have radiation this many years ago. I've been having problems ever since then. Here's where I'm to now. So usually just by bringing it up, being open, your patient will be open in return. Now the Plicit model. I want you to know this. It's a wonderful guide for provision of sexual counseling and it almost always comes up on the certification exam. So it's one of those um, acronyms where every letter stands for something. There's four levels, so there's permission, which we should provide, limited information, which we can provide, specific suggestions, which we can provide, and intensive therapy, and that requires referral. So permission, permission's just, it is normal and okay to have questions about sexuality and resumption of sexual activity. Every cognitively intact adult, older teenager should get permission. And you provide permission simply by bringing up the topic. That's all you have to do. If you're talking to a patient preoperatively and you know that the surgical procedure that they're going to have creates the potential for sexual dysfunction, you have to bring it up preoperatively. If this is a cognitively intact adult or an older teen. And the best way to bring it up is to say, has your surgeon already talked to you about the possible effect of this surgery on sexual function, on your ability to get an erection, on your ability to ejaculate, on vaginal lubrication, whatever. But just bring it up. Just say, has your surgeon already discussed this with you? Simply by the fact that I bring it up, I tell you, hey, this is fine. Do you have questions about this? Tell me what they are. I'll answer them. Postoperatively, a great approach is to say one concern that most people with an ostomy have is the possible effect on sexual function and their sexual relationship. So I wanted to see what concerns, what questions you have. So then I'm clearly telling you, I expect that you have questions, I expect you have concerns, Let's talk about your specific questions and concerns. So practice those introductory lines till you're very comfortable with them. You're going to need to use them. Limited information. Some patients need this, others do not. It's specific information about any anticipated changes in sexual function. So it's a critical component of pre-op teaching and informed consent if the patient's undergoing a procedure that can alter sexual function. 
So if I was providing pre-op teaching for a male scheduled for a nerve-sparing cystoprostatectomy, I have to bring this up. I have to say, did your surgeon say anything to you about how this surgery would affect your ability to get an erection and to ejaculate? Because that is part of informed consent. If this patient is undergoing a procedure that is not expected to have any impact on sexual function, then you can delay discussion of sexual issues until the post-op period unless the patient brings it up. So what you could say to the patient, do you have any other questions about how this ostomy might impact your usual activities, work activities, recreational activities, sexual activity, any of those? So you can provide them the opportunity to ask any questions. If they say, no, not right now, you can delay the discussion until the post-op period. Specific suggestions. That is specific information, specific recommendations that address this patient's particular concerns and issues. And they fall into four general categories for an individual with an ostomy. First of all, measures to reduce anxiety about resumption of sexual activity. Most patients are nervous about this. Okay, what are some things you can do to reduce anxiety? Anxiety is not a positive thing when it comes to sexual activity. So we wanna reduce anxiety, increase their comfort level. Two, tips for managing the stoma and pouch during sexual activity. How can I keep it from flapping around? How do I make sure it doesn't leak? How can I refocus my attention, my partner's attention, away from the pouch onto each other? The third category is suggestions for patients who have altered sexual function. How can they maintain their sexual relationship, their intimate relationship? And then finally, how and when to tell a potential partner about the ostomy. So we'll go through each of these categories briefly. So measures to reduce anxiety about resumption of sexual activity. The single strategy that is most effective in reducing anxiety is to talk openly with your partner. To say, you know, I'm feeling a whole lot better. I'm thinking we're probably getting pretty close to starting to have sex again. I'm really nervous. Um, I'm worried about all kinds of things. I'm worried about the pouch. I'm worried about how you're going to react. I'm worried about how I'm going to react. Just openly talking that through with your partner makes a huge difference, brings anxiety levels way down. Once you've talked it through, it's like, okay, I feel so much better. I feel ready. Also, especially for women, for everybody, but especially for women because their ability to respond sexually is so tied into how they feel emotionally, how secure they feel, how attractive they feel. So tell them, pick lingerie, pick clothing that makes you feel attractive, makes you feel sexy. Consider things like lighting candles, using soft music, anything that helps set the mood and make you more interested and more comfortable. And finally, make sure before you begin sexual activity, make sure your pouch is secure and concealed. And that's the next set of suggestions. So you don't want them worrying about the pouch the whole time. You don't want them focused on the pouch. You want them focused on their partner and sharing pleasure with their partner. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, you tell them always, always, always empty the pouch, check the seal before you begin sexual activity. If you're hoping to have sex tonight and tomorrow's your day to change the pouch, you know what? It's probably a really good idea to go ahead and change the pouch this afternoon. Give it a few hours so that you have really good adhesion, but you're not on the last day of your pouch seal. Secondly, 
if you have, if you're using a two-piece pouching system, think about swapping out your drainable pouch for a mini pouch so that it's not hanging down and it's not flapping. If that's not an option, then think about how you're going to secure and conceal the pouch. Now, you could just tape it down. But for most people who are resuming sexual activity, a better choice is to select an option that secures the pouch but also conceals it so that you're not looking at the pouch, your partner's not looking at the pouch, so you can refocus on each other. There's a lot of commercial products available. That's what you see on this slide. Um, there's special underwear from Options for Yentl Secrets, from Options and from um, Intimate Moments. There are also wraps for both men and women. So wraps for women tend to be lacy and black and sexy like you see on the top. Wraps for men tend to be plain. They come in neutral colors and in black, but they all do the same thing. They secure the pouch, they conceal the pouch, they leave all the good spots open. So suggest that to your patient. Also, some patients will make their own product. I had one patient and she made a black silk cummerbund that fastened with, Vel with Velcro. And so she would wrap that black silk cummerbund over her pouch during sexual activity. And she told me it made her feel sexy. She and her husband both loved black silk. So she said it was a turn on for both of them. Made her feel much more secure, much more comfortable. And then her husband told me once, he's like, hey, Dorothy, did Pat ever tell you about her black cummerbund? And I'm like, yeah, she did. She said it works really well for both of you. He's like, yeah. He's like, you know an added advantage? I'm like, no, what? He's like, when she's got that on, I know what she's got in mind, and I just get ready. I'm like, well, see, nonverbal communication is the best. The third set of specific suggestions is options for managing altered sexual function. Of course, this is going to depend on the specific issue. So let's say you have a male patient. He's undergone um, cystoprostatectomy. Maybe he's three months out and he still hasn't regained erectile function. So this is something you're always asking patients about. If you're in the outpatient setting, you're seeing them down the road. So you're always saying, how are you doing? How are you managing? Are you having any pouching issues? How are you feeling in general? Are you doing the things you enjoy doing? What about sex? Have you resumed sexual activity? Any issues there? If you have a patient who's like, you know, I really thought I'd have erection back by now. My partner and I were really looking forward to that, but you know what? It's still not working. I'm still not getting erections. I don't have morning erections. When we mess around, nothing happens. Do you think it's going to come back? Is there anything I can do? Well, we're going to refer that patient to a urologist because, yes, there are things that can be done. So they could recommend vacuum therapy. There are vacuum therapy devices that help patients get an erection. They could recommend oral medications. They could recommend injection therapy to cause vasodilation and erection. And then for some patients, they'll say, you know, what would probably work best for you is if we take you to surgery and place a penile prosthesis. And there are a number of prosthetic devices available that restore the patient's ability to get an erection and to have intercourse. And of course, you can also discuss alternatives to intercourse for maintaining intimacy touch, oral stimulation, and again, remember that what most people want more than anything else is intimacy. So don't give up cuddling. Don't give up foreplay just because you can't have intercourse right now. Think about other ways to provide pleasure to your partner and for them to provide pleasure to you. What about using 
um, any kind of vibrators. There's a lot of vibrators available. Would you be comfortable with that? Would your partner be comfortable with that? Explore options that would work for them. What about women post-vaginectomy? So right at first, they can't resume intercourse. They have to be cleared by the surgeon before they can resume intercourse. But again, could they use touch? Could they use oral stimulation? Could they use a vibrator? Sometimes they can do simulated intercourse, which is penile thrusting between the thighs, between lubricated body folds. That can be pleasurable to the patient because penile thrusting between the thighs provides clitoral stimulation for the female, penile stimulation for the male. So that can be a great alternative until the patient's cleared to resume intercourse. What about gay and lesbian couples? They have exactly the same concerns as straight couples, but sometimes they're nervous about asking their questions Sometimes they don't even want to talk about sexuality and sexual issues because they're afraid of being judged. So one recommendation is if you're not sure of your patient's sexual orientation, use neutral terms when talking about their partner. Don't say girlfriend or wife. Say partner. Don't say boyfriend or husband. Say partner. One thing that we do have to be aware of is that sometimes um, gay couples will use the stoma as an opening for intercourse, and we have to caution them against that. It's easy to see why they would do that if they're accustomed to anal intercourse. The stoma is now the anal substitute, so it's important to say this might not relate to you, but we tell all of our patients don't put anything into the stoma. Don't use the stoma for sexual activity because that can cause trauma, damage, scarring, and long-term issues. Also, patients who undergo ileal pouch anal anastomosis, very helpful to tell them we recommend against anal intercourse because it can cause a lot of problems, complications, related to damage to the anastomosis where they connected the J pouch, the ileal pouch to the anal canal. So if in doubt, always provide that information, provide it in a very neutral manner. We tell everyone this, it might not relate to you. And then the last category is how and when to tell. So if you're out there in the dating world, you know it's a pretty scary world and there's a lot of hurdles you have to get past in trying to establish a satisfying relationship. And if you have an ostomy, it feels like yet another obstacle to, an establish, to establishing a satisfactory relationship. And people worry Okay, I know I've got to tell this person I have an ostomy, but what's going to happen when I tell them? Is it going to change everything? Is it going to be the beginning of the end? So there's really two questions, when to tell and then how to tell. When to tell is somewhat individual because we all differ in how open we are. So some of us will share very personal information at a much earlier point in the relationship than someone else. But definitely when you get to the point where you're sharing personal information and before you become physically intimate. Now how to tell, we have some very good guidelines for how to tell. You wanna be upbeat and positive the message you want to convey is there's something different about me that I want to tell you about, but there's nothing wrong with me. Um, I'm not sick. I'm not disabled. It's just something that's different. Think about the difference in that approach versus if I started out by saying, well, um, you know, there's something I have to tell you, and I promised myself I would tell you tonight. I promised myself I would not come home again and not tell you. And I know that this might be the last time I see you, 
but still you have a right to know and I'm going to tell you. It's like, oh my God, she's an ex-murderer. He's out on parole or whatever. So you want to be positive. You want to be upbeat. You want to practice because you're going to be nervous and you want to think about the words you use. I remember one patient I had and she and I were walking through this scenario together. When she had her ostomy, she was married. She and her husband adapted to the ostomy, no big deal. Subsequently divorced for issues totally unrelated to the ostomy. And a couple of years later, she called me and she's like, okay, I'm dating this guy, it's getting serious. I've got to tell him about the ostomy. Help walk me through this. So we walked through being upbeat, being positive, but I forgot to tell her, don't use medical terms. She had had long-standing ulcerative colitis. She was so accustomed to medical terminology, she didn't even know when she was using it. So she's like, there's something I need to tell you that's a little different about me, but I'm fine. And he's like, okay. She's like, well, from the time I was 14 till the time I was 22, I had really, really bad ulcerative colitis. And I ended up having to have a proctocolectomy and an ileostomy. And he's like, wait, I didn't understand anything you said past from when I was 14 to 22. It sounded like you were really sick, but I didn't know any of those words. Can you use different words to explain what you're telling me? So she said, then she was so flustered, she couldn't figure out how to explain it. So finally he stops her and he's like, wait, does this mean you can't do it? You can't have sex? And she's like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't mean that at all. All of that's fine. He's like, okay, well then whatever it is, we'll figure it out and it'll be okay. I'm just so relieved it's not that. So she said, be sure and tell people don't use medical terminology. The other thing you need to talk about if you're talking to a patient about when and how to tell is worst case scenario. They're nervous. There's a reason they're nervous. They're afraid that telling this person about the ostomy might mean the end of the relationship. And so then you want to ask them. You want to say, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? I never hear from him again. Or she never goes out with me again. Okay, I agree. That's probably worst case. What would that say about you? Well, nothing really. Right. It says nothing about you. What does it say about them? They can't handle anything different? They're pretty superficial? Exactly. If telling them about your ostomy means the end of the relationship, are you ready to do that? Yes, well, why would I keep wasting time? Exactly. If that's where you are, you're ready. Intensive therapy, that's for people with long-standing sexual issues or very complex sexual issues. Um, I know I had a patient and sex had been an issue for him and his partner long term. She had wanted to go for sexual counseling. He didn't want to go. So he's like, and now I'm having to have my bladder out. It's going to change everything. I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't know what to do either, but I know where to refer you. So now you want to refer a patient to a sexual counselor or to a family relationships counselor. Now, you should be aware that most people are most concerned and voice most of their questions about resumption of sexual activity and sexual relationships between 4 and 12 weeks post-op. Early post-op, I can't think about that. I feel terrible. My belly hurts. Everything seems like it hurts. I'm trying to figure out how to empty this thing. I'm trying to learn how to change this thing. I can't even think about sex yet. But four weeks later, six weeks later, where, okay, I've I figured this out. I can keep my pouch on. I know how to manage it. I'm feeling ever so much better. My appetite's back. 
my energy levels coming back. I actually feel a whole lot better now that I got that sick colon out of there. Now I'm starting to think about going back to work, resuming recreational activities, and resuming sexual activity. So once again, it reinforces the importance of providing long-term follow-up so that the patient has a resource when they're really ready to discuss these questions and these issues. And we put um, a resource down there, the United Ostomy Association of America. They have materials on resumption of sexual activity with an ostomy. So in summary, we know that ostomy surgery can have a negative impact on sexuality and sexual function. We know that 40% of patients undergoing ostomy surgery report that they had questions and concerns that were not addressed. That's why it's important for us to bring this up, to talk to our patients. All of our patients have to deal with the psychological impact of an ostomy and body altering surgery. And patients who undergo radical pelvic dissection are also at risk for sexual dysfunction, organic dysfunction. In providing sexual counseling, we follow the Plissett model. All older adults and all older adolescents and cognitively intact adults should get permission. We should open the door. We should bring up the subject. We should ask them what questions, what concerns they have. Any patient who is at risk for sexual dysfunction should be informed of that preoperatively as part of informed consent. Specific suggestions include reducing anxiety about resumption of sexual activity, management of the pouch and the stoma during sexual activity, how to maintain an intimate relationship if we can't have intercourse, how and when to tell. And then finally, you'll have a few patients who might have complex or long-standing issues regarding sexuality and their sexual relationship. Those patients should be referred to a sex therapist or to a relationship counselor. Okay, that's it for sexual counseling for ostomy patients.